are listening to Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where that's what we talk about. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book I wrote uh, several years ago about taking the fear factor out of pregnancy and birth and adding some common sense to your prenatal care, and it's based on my good long career as a labor and delivery nurse. Now, it's been a while since I've been a bedside birth and nurse, and I've segued my career um, into writing, speaking, and podcasting about health and politics and women's lives. And right now, I tell you what, I feel like I am double-timing those roles. All my assignments this week have focused on the coronavirus, and I gotta tell you, I am so impressed and proud of the health professionals in our country who are the, you know, not just in our country, around the world, who are doing just the best they can in the face of a terribly frightening virus. It takes sheer courage and bravery to show up at work on a normal day working at a hospital. You never know what's going to happen, who you're going to care for, what the situation's going to be. But these days, It takes super courage and bravery to the max extreme. It takes dedication to serve. That's beyond what most of us will ever be required to do. Now, I remember back in the 80s how hard it was to go to work when um, HIV AIDS was a new virus because we didn't understand as much as we do now about how it spread or how to protect ourselves. And it was frightening. But This virus is on a whole other level in terms of anxiety because we do know how it spreads easily through respiratory droplets and indiscriminately. I mean, damn, if Tom Hanks can get it and loads of members of, you know, the highest levels of government in the Trump administration, including the president, can be exposed, well, we're all at risk. So what do we do about it? I think... We use a lot of common sense and we model the bravery, courage, and dedication to service that we're seeing from nurses and doctors and lab techs and pharmacists and respiratory techs and janitors and medical assistants and every single person who is showing up at work right now willing to risk their health to serve the greater population. So how do we do that? We model it through our willingness to limit our exposure and limit exposing others in order to limit the number of people who have to show up at the hospital. We do it by serving our people, whoever they are, with whatever we can offer. We do it by being patient and kind, knowing that everyone is more anxious than they should be and more anxious than usual, and by recognizing that we are all fragile, vulnerable, and at risk. The thing is, we never had to wait for a pandemic to do these things. It's just that now we see how valuable it is and how necessary, how simple it is. Most of us can't invent the test that'll finally identify who has this virus and who doesn't, but we can call our old people and make sure they've got groceries We can help each other out now that, you know, everybody's kids are going to be stuck at home without school. We can pick up an extra bottle of Tylenol and drop it off on our neighbor's porch if we hear they're under the weather. We can Venmo 20 bucks to the waitress at our usual cafe who just got laid off because no one's eating out. We can do all these little things. They truly make a difference. And person by person, we'll do the best we can. Yes, 
We're all frightened of what we don't know, and right now, this virus feels very, very ominous. But now is the time to live our values. Now is the time to help, share, step up to be the person you want to be during a crisis. I do believe that we will come through this if we all do our part. And as a result, I think we're all going to see the value of creating a better, stronger society where we recognize the cracks that we can all fall through. I mean, it's crazy that many of us can't get health care or can't stay home from work when we're sick because we can't afford either of those. It's crazy how many people in the world don't have food, don't have shelter. And so when they get sick, they're just out in the open. It's crazy that millions of people around the world are handling this better than we are here in the United States because they live in countries that recognize we're all human, we all get sick, and society is safer and better when we all can take care of ourselves and each other. Universal health care, paid sick leave, and community support services aren't socialism any more than public school and fire service are. They're plain old common sense. Now, I don't know what's going to happen as a result of this virus, but for damn sure, we're all seeing the mess we're in. So I saw a post today that says, to those who now have 28 packages of pasta, to those who are searching the black market for hand sanitizer, to those who walk around with a face mask, and to those who are planning to flee with their kids out of a corona-infected corona area, never again lurk, look down on people who flee from war and famine. Right? Right? We're all vulnerable. Okay. Now, some of you may have noticed that I took last week's podcast down. I wish I hadn't had to. Um, we talked about the primary elections, the coronavirus, and a few other topics. But unfortunately, that conversation made my guest's bosses real skittish, and I agreed to take it down for her sake. This week, though, we're going to keep the conversation going by talking with another healthcare provider about coronavirus and patient care. We're also going to read a listener's email about home birth, induction, um, and uh, two-vessel umbilical cord. So let's get to it. Let's take a real, real quick break, and then we'll get our favorite midwife in the whole wide world on the line, Chris Beard, certified nurse midwife. Okay, we're back, and we're ready to talk with Chris, so let's get her on the line. Hi, Jeannie. Nice to hear from you. I know. It's been a little while since you've been on the podcast. We've missed you. How are you? Well, I appreciate that. Well, good, good. You and I have a lot to talk about in a short period of time. So I'm going to have you introduce yourself real quick, and then we're going to dig right into it. So you know the question, who are you and what do you do? I am Chris Beard. I am a nurse midwife in Portland, Oregon. I've been in practice for 27 years, and I currently work for Kaiser Permanente, where I've been for the last 23 years. Yeah. I am a mother of, oops, sorry. Go ahead. I'm a mother, I'm a mother of two teenage daughters, and I'm getting ready to shepherd my oldest daughter off to college this fall. And so doing all those, those, um, family bonding things that you do when you're first is ready to fly the nest. Yeah. It's a challenging time. I'm using the word challenging. Yeah, that's it. 
I'm glad you're doing it. You're off on another one of your adventures, aren't you? I am. I am preparing to get in my car and drive to Southern Utah, where my kids and I will spend two and a half weeks exploring arches and bears ears and a place called the Pariah Wilderness. That is so awesome. And you're going to be camping in your, um, your VW camper van? I'm going to be camping in my new camper van, which is a modern version of the VW. Awesome. I love, I love your life. It's a good one. Yeah. I feel very grateful for my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm really um, a little bit jealous of is that you get to kind of escape the online and real life panic that we're all going through with the coronavirus. And I got to tell you, I had an episode up last week where I spoke with a doctor about a number of issues and we touched on the coronavirus and then um, her media relations people weren't happy with her being a spokesperson for that. So we ended up taking it down. And um, so listeners, that's why there's a gap in the schedule. That episode was up for a minute and then we took it right back down. So I'm wondering if you could just touch a little bit on how you're feeling about the virus, what you're seeing, you know, your thoughts. Well, I'm feeling quite concerned about the virus and equally concerned about um, the way the public is being uh, informed, or should I say not informed, about the virus. And my institution is putting out daily briefings, implementing staff trainings or how to protect ourselves while we're caring for people who are ill with this virus. You know, the virus is new to human beings, so none of us have any natural immunity. What that means is that, you know, 80% of people who get the virus are going to get maybe just a little sick, but 20% are going to get a lot sick. And of those a lot sick people, many are going to die. And the the problem that we have going on right now is that our country is not testing people. So we don't know what the true rate is, and that impedes our ability to contain um, and slow down the outbreak. So um, just recently, this you know the state that we live in, Oregon, and our neighboring state, Washington, are implementing some measures called social distancing, which means they're Um, requesting that people not gather in large groups. And this includes things like basketball games, soccer games, graduations, um, any kind of planned large group is being asked to not, not, not gather in a large group. And my organization has canceled all in-person meetings. They've canceled all travel for people. And so, you know, this is a pretty pretty serious situation, and I don't think we have any idea how it's going to unfold, except for we know it's going to unfold. So although this trip has been planned for almost a year, uh, the timing is very fortuitous for me because I'm going to be able to practice social distancing um, naturally. Yeah. And... So, you know, just this week, I, uh, you know, I saw patients face-to-face yesterday. We're also offering, as an organization, uh, video visits and telephone visits for anyone who doesn't want to come in 
to the clinic and potentially be exposed to an ill person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yesterday I did a couple of video visits and the visits that I did in person, you know, I talked to each, each pregnant woman in my practice about how to protect herself against this virus because pregnant women are in the susceptible group of people who are considered to be high risk. Pregnancy is an immunosuppressed time. And so anything that's out there is going to be more serious, more easy to catch if you're pregnant because your immune system's not up to par and you're going to get sicker if you get something because your immune system's not functioning at its full capacity. And so when I sat down with my patients to say, I want to talk to you about COVID-19, you know, what I saw in their face was a was like, oh my God, I can't believe she's talking to me about this. And, you know, I simply told people, I want you to protect yourself. I want you to practice social distancing and wash your hands more than you ever have in your whole life. So soap and water is preferred. If you don't have access to soap and water, then, then alcohol-based hand sanitizer is the second best choice. Yeah. So it's really, um, you know, I feel like as a frontline healthcare provider, I have to be informed and I have to inform my patients, even if it frightens them. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I know that when I return from this trip in two and a half weeks, it is going to be a very different picture. And I don't know what that picture is going to look like, but um, I know it's going to be different because this thing is growing. Yeah. Spreading. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty um, thorough recap of, of what people should know. I do have one question. Is is the reason why pregnant women are more immune suppressed is because their immune system is working to protect the baby? That's always been my understanding mm-hmm. is that you can't have a foreigner living in your body <laughs> with your fully functional immune system. You got to share it. You got to share that immune system. Yeah. Yeah. So it has to kind of dial back a little bit yeah. so that it can be a good be a good environment for that um, other. Yeah. And it's my understanding that so far as we know to this point, um, it doesn't seem like there's a vertical transmission between a pregnant mother and her baby that she's, you know, has in utero. Is that your understanding? Well, I think we don't have the data. Okay. I think that this is a new enough um, this is a new enough disease that started in December in China, mm-hmm. and China is where the big numbers are going to come out of because they were the first they were the, you know the the send off point, and I just think we don't have the data. So, you know, many viruses are vertically transmitted, but we don't know enough about this one to know. Okay, fair enough. To be continued on all of this. So you and I often talk about our frustrations with this presidential administration, and my frustration is off the charts. I feel like um, we're being deliberately misinformed for political reasons, and I'm wondering what you think about it. I completely agree, and I think that when you listen to the people who are the spokespeople for this um, pandemic. I want to hear from the scientists. I want to hear from the physicians. I want to hear from the frontline epidemiologists. Yeah. I don't want to hear from a politician who's more concerned about how he's going to look. I don't want to hear from people who don't have an intimate 
understanding of science and a knowledge. And I, I agree with you. I think that I think that this situation has been mishandled from the get-go. Yeah. And I am deeply concerned about what the mishandling has done to the timeline and our ability to prepare. Yeah. From... You know, I think... Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, there is there does not appear to be a grown-up in charge. And I've told people recently that if you want to hear the words of a grown-up, you should find the words of Jay Inslee, who's the governor of the state of Washington, because he actually got out in front of this as it was unfolding, and he got out in front very quickly. And as a result, he's been criticized and vilified by the administration because he's too honest. Mm -hmm. So he's the grown-up that I've heard recently. There may be other grown-ups, but um, he's the grown-up. Yeah. I also think that the information we're getting from the World Health Organization is very unbiased. And, you know, the numbers that we're seeing reported are changing rapidly, um, but WHO seems to be a little bit, um, maybe a little bit more reliable right now than even the Centers for Disease Control here in the U.S., which is disturbing to me. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. The WHO has the WHO has the bird's eye view, and they are they are out there providing information for people who want to avail themselves of that information. Yeah, yeah. So, what about panic? How much time do you think people should be spending online watching this unfold in real time? You know, we're streamlining a pandemic, and we've never done that before, and. Um, it's pretty terrifying for a lot, a lot, a lot of people. You know, it's difficult because if there was um, honest and accurate and timely information coming from someone that we trusted, we wouldn't have to be online panicking. So I guess what I would suggest, which is something that I do myself, is I have a couple of sources and I have a couple of places that I go for information and I try to just do it once a day. Yeah. I don't do it, you know, I don't do it morning, noon and night. And, you know, I'm I'm heading off into the no cell service, no internet access land. And on the one hand, I'm very grateful that I won't be able to access information. But on the other hand, I, I like information, so that's going to be a little uncomfortable for me. Yeah, and then coming back I, from this I, vacation is going to be a doozy. It is. It's going to be, you know, I just told someone this morning, I said, I don't know what I'm going to walk into. I don't, you know, I've dialed it up so that my staff, um, I mean, all of my all of the shifts are filled in my setting. My staff knows who to go to if there's some kind of scheduling snafu, if somebody gets sick, if their kid gets sick. But that's under normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I could I could walk into um, to a situation where multiple members of my team are too ill to come to work or they're quarantined because they've been exposed to someone with COVID-19. And that is really going to impact my ability to deliver patient care in my setting. Yeah. And so, and so that is, you know, I think that the impact on healthcare workers is one of the 
um, byproducts of this situation is that if the you know they they're saying recently flatten the curve, yeah, which means slow the transmission, and it's flattening the curve so that the physicians and nurses and midwives and physician assistants and everyone on the first line of medical care can can take care of people so that we're not overwhelmed and sick and that our hospitals aren't, you know, overflowing. So if you slow things down, then it's more likely to be um, a, a patient numbers that are manageable rather than overwhelming. So, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to walk back to. Yeah, yeah. But I'll be rested. Yeah. I'll be rested and refreshed and I will have filled my soul with nature, which, which is, you know, my driving force in life. So that's nature, one good thing. Nature and daughters, best things there are. Yeah. Yeah. The truth. Yeah. All right. Well, let's switch gears. And I want to, I got a, a real good listener email this week and I wonder if you'd help me answer it. You ready? Sure. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, my listener wrote, Hi, Jeannie. I'm a 34 plus weeks pregnant, planning a home birth and have a two vessel umbilical cord, a.k.a. single umbilical artery. My perinatal doctor is recommending being induced at 39 weeks via membrane sweep due to the umbilical cord and my age. I'll turn 40 one month after giving birth and has mentioned the increased the increased risk of stillbirth due to my age and the cord. I feel like this is invasive and want to try to let labor happen naturally by my due date and go from there, but also feel fearful now. I'll talk about this more this week with my home birth midwife as well. It feels like a difficult decision to make without more information. Have you encountered induction due to a two-vessel umbilical cord or addressed this in your podcast? Is it an evidence-based reason to induce a week before the due date, or is this being alarmist? Any thoughts are appreciated. Best, Aaliyah. What do you think, Chris? What do you think about this? So I'm one one thing I'm curious about is why is she seeing a perinatal doctor and a home birth midwife simultaneously? That's a good so question. So she's she that that was my first question. So. You know, there's two quests, there's two things to unpack here. Number one is what impact does a single does a single umbilical artery or a two vessel cord have on your pregnancy? And what and the second thing is, you know, what about my age? Yeah. And although the data is not strong, many practices are suggesting induction for people over the age of thirty-five. And, you know, I work for a group practice, so I, I, am, I am bound to follow the guidelines of my practice. And my group practice believes that people who are over the age of 35 need to be offered induction. So it's between it's 35 and up, and I don't have the chart in front of me and I don't have it memorized, um, but there, people are offered induction either at their due date or one week before based on their maternal age at the time of birth. And the, the idea behind it is that your risk of stillbirth goes up with your age. And when you think about it, it makes a little bit of sense that 
if you're 39 years old, your egg is 39 years old. So the placenta that grows from that egg is 39 years old. That is a different situation than someone who's 22. And so in some ways I can understand that the placenta may age differently and more quickly the older that you are. But I have taken care of hundreds of women in my life who are between the age of 35 and 40 who had perfectly healthy, normal, spontaneous labors without being induced. So when I counsel people about induction related to advanced maternal age, you know, it's really all about the risk that they want to assume for themselves and their baby. And the risk of stillbirth is very small. However, if you're that person, it's not small to you. So it's a difficult decision for people to make. You know, at the age of 40, your chance of having a stillbirth is 0.81, which means that out of a thousand births, 8.1 people will have a stillbirth who are 40 years old. Or about 99.2% chance that you won't have a stillbirth. Correct. And at 39, which is the age that this reader, this listener is, she's not 40. She is 39 until she's 40. And so she's 39. The risk is 0.61. So, you know, my personal approach is that I don't want women to be scared into making decisions. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's a very small risk. Now, if you were 44 or 45, that is a different story to me because the, the risk goes up exponentially at those ages. Um, and I recently did just have a 47-year-old patient who conceived spontaneously after years of infertility. Wow. Can you believe that? I can. What a joy. Yeah. What a joy. Yeah. Anyway, so so the age risk is a separate thing, and I believe that many systems are protecting themselves against litigation by encouraging people to be induced. Um, because that is a very tiny risk of stillbirth. Yeah. Um, the single umbilical artery is an interesting question because I don't think there's good data about inducing someone for a single umbilical artery. Um, the data that I could find when I was, you know, digging around about this the other day was, you know, if you have a single umbilical artery, you have a slightly higher chance of having a baby with some kind of anomaly, like a renal anomaly. Um, but if you have a normally grown baby with normal fluid and a normal placenta, it doesn't seem to me that a single umbilical artery is anything to worry about. You know, we didn't even see single umbilical arteries for decades because we didn't do routine ultrasound. Right. So that's the reason why you check how many vessels are in the cord after the baby's born, just so you can pass that on to the pediatrician. Yeah. But, you know, my experience has been that it's not generally an issue. If your baby is normally grown, you have normal fluid, and there's no issues with your placenta. Okay. What, what's your thought? I'm right there things? with you. I feel like um, an awful lot of inductions are recommended because of fear of lit litigation by the healthcare facility. And... Um, so they make these recommendations. I would guess that the reason she's seeing a perinatal doctor is because of that single umbilical artery. Her home birth midwife is probably being, you know, thorough 
and, you know, saw this on an ultrasound and said, you know what, let's check in with somebody just in case. That's my guess. I don't know. But yeah, that's a good, that's a good thought. So my other, I did have one other thing I wanted to speak to before we wrap up. And that is that while membrane sweeping or membrane stripping, as we call it in, in my world, is um, is something that is offered to people at the end of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. It is not a method of induction. It has been used for years to try to move things along. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to be offered induction, you're going to be you're going to be required to come to the hospital to have IV access, to have continuous fetal monitoring, and have some sort of medical agent. A membrane stripping is not an induction. If I had someone who wanted to avoid an induction that I knew was going to have an induction because of either hypertension or they were getting close to the 41 and a half week mark, I would offer them membrane stripping in the office because I don't think it's harmful. But in my experience, that's not a method of induction. So I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Yeah. So Aaliyah, if you're listening to this, We didn't exactly tell you what to do, but I hope that we gave you some pretty good information so you can make your own best decision. Um, So, Chris, thank you. I really appreciate your hopping on the phone with me today to talk about this. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners today? So I would just like to tell your listeners to um, I want to talk. I want to go back to the COVID-19, find a trusted source of information use that source of information on a daily or every other day basis to find out what's happening in your part of the country, wash your hands. And if you feel like social distancing is something that you can do for yourself and your family, remember you're not only protecting yourself, you're protecting the elderly and vulnerable in your community. Because if you get a mild case of COVID-19, Fortunately, if you get it, you could potentially infect someone who would get a severe case. And for me personally, I wouldn't want to be responsible for that. Right. So find a trusted source of information, practice social distancing, and just like your kindergarten teacher said, wash your hands, please. Yep. Yep. We're all back in kindergarten with this disease. Yeah. Well, thanks, Chris. And I hope that you and the girls have a really, really great trip. Safe travels. Thanks, Jeannie. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. That's it for this week, everybody. Stay safe. Stay home. And do try to keep your wits about you, will ya? Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said. You can send me your emails at jean at jeanfaulkner.com. And you can find out more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Tweet me at Jean Faulkner, Instagram and Facebook over at Pregnancy Parenting and Politics. And yeah, I'll spell my name, J-E-A-N-N-E, Faulkner, F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. So let me know how you're doing, and I'll be thinking about you all. Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is produced by Recluse Records. We'll talk again next week, everybody.